Many people across the country, especially in the Western United States, have been dealing with a new season recently, smoke season. Starting in late summer and going into fall, they have to monitor air quality levels and hunker down when it's not safe to go outside. For those needing to be outside, it can be a massive shock. It can feel stifling, your eyes can burn, it can be hard to breathe, and the sunlight is filtered with this apocalyptic red glow. Over the past few years, alpinist, filmmaker, and climate activist Graham Zimmerman has watched his home in Bend, Oregon get consumed by smoke over and over again. As someone who loves spending time outside, Graham wondered what exactly he could do to help. He decided to dig deep and investigate. Why are there so many destructive wildfires at this point in history? How are they related to climate change? And what can we do about them? I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Graham Zimmerman, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. I am honored to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Where are you now? Are you in the Pacific Northwest? So I'm I'm at my home in Bend, Oregon. Um, this is this is where I live with my wife Shannon and our dog Pebble. And let's see, we've been here for I think seven or eight years now. Um, and it's it's been a really great little hideout for me, um, for all of us. It's you know it's a, it's in the Pacific Northwest, but it's on the dry side of the mountains. So we get you know great mountain biking, great climbing, great skiing. You're quite the outdoor athlete. Like, have you always been in the outdoors? Like, how did you get into it since you were a kid? I mean, you do a lot of things, especially mountaineering at a very high level. Yeah. So I work as a professional climbing athlete. That's something I've done for gosh, like 15 or 20 years now. And, and I've done a lot of stuff over the years professionally. Um, I've always maintained work outside of, of climbing, but climbing is really the thread that's, that's woven its way through my entire life. And there's this really interesting kind of mental switch that I found myself switching at some point where I realized that I really liked going up and that, resulted in me kind of exploring rock climbing, me exploring ice climbing and and really kind of see eventually seeing this pathway through which I could go and get into, you know, mountain climbing. And I kind of figured that out probably when I was like 16 years old and it's been a thread that I've been pulling on ever since. It's been great. What did your parents think of that? Like that's, you know, you were 16, you're like, "Mom, I'm going to be a mountain climber." They were totally freaked out, you know, when their 16-year-old kid was becoming hellbent on mountain climbing as, as folks from Kansas, they, I think it was pretty outside of the box for them. And to their credit, they didn't, they didn't say you can't do this. They said, let's figure this out and how we can, you know, make sure that you survive. And so they actually signed me up for a couple of courses and things like that, where I was able to learn the kind of hard skills needed to, you know, stay safe in the mountains. And, you know, it's like been a really important component to how I've stayed safe in the mountains for the last 20 years. So you became a professional climber after school. Well, it's not that simple. So I finished school. I wanted to go climbing. I spent a number of years kind of working odd jobs that was like, you know, high income, hard labor jobs. And it was great. It was awesome. Um, And it paid for expeditions. It was the American West dirtbag climber dream. And uh, and I spent well, I spent a while working in Yosemite on the Yosemite Search and Rescue Team, which is really powerful. Um, but what I what I actually ended up doing professionally for a number of years, kind of, and it was it was parallel paths with kind of like developing a career as a professional alpinist. But um, I actually ended up working in geophysics for a long time, mostly looking for rare earth minerals, and it was this like 
it was this amazing job for being kind of, uh, you know, having like to, to sit alongside being a pro climber. And it really allowed me to do two things. One is to like develop a professional skill set outside of climbing, which is really helpful. And it also allowed me to like take on climbing sponsorship really on my own terms. Um, I was never like beholden to sponsors to like pay the rent. I had that taken care of. And at the same time, I was like going in to wild areas of the world a lot, of, like spent a lot of time in East Africa looking for uh, silver and gold out there. And it was it was super cool. Um, but it also like I had to really face down some kind of social equity problems out there because I was like working for multinational companies looking for rare earth mineral resources in, you know, underprivileged parts of the world. And it, it was something that as I kind of matured, became more and more apparent was eventually the reason I actually got out of geophysics was was because I just realized that I was it was it was a space in which I was gaining a lot personally, but was having a, you know, essentially a negative impact on the, you know, on the globe. And that was something that I wasn't wasn't willing to continue pursuing. So so I actually quit that work and at that time um, was starting to do more and more storytelling work and was able to pivot that into launching a film company and really digging into storytelling. And I ran that company for like six years and it was really successful. And it was really it was a really cool pivot to be able to take all these kind of project management skills from the geophysics space, bring them into the creative space and then utilize them to instead of driving forward, you know, mining and global inequity, we were able to tell stories that hopefully point us towards the world that we want to live in. Graham started Bedrock Filmworks in 2016 with his co-founder, Jim Aikman. Then in 2019, Graham and Jim launched a critically acclaimed podcast called Wildfire. The first season of the show was an investigation of the 2017 Eagle Creek Fire in the Columbia River Gorge, right outside of Portland, Oregon. The day this fire started, 150 hikers were trapped on nearby trails, and it didn't just last a few days. This man-made fire burned for three months. In the podcast, Graham and Jim dug into the story behind the Eagle Creek fire, how it started, what it was like for firefighters on the ground, and why it lasted so long. They found that the fire wasn't just a fluke. According to Graham, it was a consequence of 200 years of forestry and environmental policy decisions. The way I met you is because you have this podcast on REI Co-op Studios, Wildfire, which is really good. So how did you get into wanting to study and do a podcast on wildfires? Um, When we're looking at different subjects that we really need to dig into, Wildfire is a really important subject, particularly in the American West, and it's complicated. In the place where I live, it's like in Central Oregon, we have a fifth season now, which is smoke season. And it is really, it's really heinous. But our increase in wildfire frequency and severity is directly associated with climate change. So the Wildfire Podcast, you've come out with two seasons. Tell me about the show. Yeah, first season is all about the Eagle Creek Fire which is a was a massive fire that took place in the Columbia River Gorge in 2017. It burned through a bunch of communities out there. And it was all actually started by a young man playing with fireworks. And so it was kind of this whole like really interesting story of understanding our relationship to these spaces and what we do within them. And then also this like 
really catastrophic fire story. So it really gave us this like really powerful platform from which we could dig into, you know, what is going on with forestry practices and how we can do a better job with them. So season two came out in 2021. What was the second season about? The second season is all about the Amazon. And right around the time that we were finishing the first season of the show, we were starting to see all these reports about like the satellite imagery that was showing all this burning in the Amazon and how burning in the Amazon was like way up. And there were these huge plumes of smoke like coming off of the rainforest. And and it was like this framework where I was like, I don't know what this is like it's a tropical rainforest. It's super wet. Like, why is it burning down there? So we started researching that. And there was a book that I pretty quickly stumbled on by, I think, Andrew Revkin called The Burning Season. And it's it was a book written in, I think, the early 90s. That's, that's basically all about a man named Chico Mendes, who during the 1980s was like one of the strongest advocates for protecting the rainforest. Um, And he was a rubber tapper. So he's not indigenous himself, but he was kind of a part of a forest community down there. And so it was about his, his story of advocacy and activism. And then he was subsequently murdered in the late 80s by evil ranchers, basically. And I was like, just totally befuddled by the fact that I'd never heard of this guy. Um, You know, he's like, clearly one of like, the major defenders of the rainforest. And I never heard of him. If if I don't know the story, then there are a lot of people who don't that should. And then also kind of update on like where we're at now with protecting the Amazon rainforest, because in the last 10 years, a lot has changed. There was a major regime change down in Brazil with Bolsonaro, and he's really like opened the floodgates of utilizing the Amazon as as an economic resource, which has primarily shown up as, you know, mining and agriculture, both of which result in a lot of deforestation. And so we started researching that and ended up doing a whole story on um, basically conservation of the rainforest and the fact that all those fires are actually man-made down there. And they're, they're, it's a tool that's being used to clear the forest for agriculture and so we went down there and we did a bunch of research on it in terms of like what's going on currently. We went to his hometown, talked to folks about him, um, had, had some really interesting conversations with a bunch of folks who were who were there and then really spent a lot of time looking at, you know, looking at the rainforest today and how we can preserve it. And spoiler alert, indigenous knowledge is a super important component to that. Same deal. Like we ended up going and hanging out with the Surui tribe down in southwestern Brazil, or I guess kind of western Brazil. And we're hanging out talking with them about like what they're doing to preserve their forests and how they're creating a model through which other tribes and other communities can do that as well. And it was really it was really powerful. It's like um, in many ways, you know, uh, a challenging subject, but also we found a lot of optimism down there, which is really cool. The Amazon is sometimes called the lungs of the world. As the largest rainforest on Earth, the Amazon plays an essential role in our climate. The trees absorb a lot of carbon dioxide created by human life. Here in the United States, the fires in the Amazon may have felt really far away, but the warming of our planet is a global issue. Fires like this anywhere in the world have an impact on all of us and the air we breathe. While it can feel overwhelming, Graham says that saving the planet starts right at home in our local communities. When we come back, Graham talks about his biggest takeaways from making wildfire and what it means to be an imperfect activist.
Environmental advocate, professional mountaineer, and storyteller Graham Zimmerman is co-host of the podcast Wildfire. During the making of the show, he met a lot of fascinating people. Historians, hikers, scientists, firefighters, indigenous leaders, and residents of Wildfire Territory. Graham has learned a lot while researching and making the podcast, and each season gives him more insight into this complicated topic. What did you learn from making the first season of the podcast? So I think that I think the biggest things that we should know about when it comes to wildfire in like particularly in the western United States are that a wildfires are an important part of this ecosystem. Like the trees literally rely on wildfire in order to open their seed pods so that they can like reproduce. Fire is not something that is unnatural here. It is in fact a very important part of what happens in these forests. And what that means is that the strategy that we've taken to deal with wildfire in the United States over the last couple hundred years, which has primarily been like full suppression of wildfire, has 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 not been the correct strategy. And so when we think about solutions for like forestry management, which is really what we're talking about here, like we're not talking about no smoke. We're not talking about no fires. We're talking about consistent smaller fires, some smoke, which is, you know, part of the deal, but not these like massive events. And so as we, you know, we think about how we kind of move into that space, we have this really, really cool resource that is oftentimes forgotten about, which is indigenous knowledge, because these are forests that were beautifully managed by indigenous populations before white white folks showed up out here. And so as we look towards like how we manage these spaces, how we live within them, it turns into this like this whole really important conversation around respect for indigenous knowledge. I feel like a lot of our community is like now making land acknowledgements, but then it kind of stops there. And we have to recognize that these are communities that have been so heavily disenfranchised for so long, let alone like dealing with genocide and some really awful stuff when we look at, you know, not not that long ago. And so for us to say like, okay, now we want to be friends and now we want your knowledge is like, it's something that's going to take a lot of work. And there are kind of a few things that I feel like I could kind of advise in terms of how to think about that. And one is to always have your eye out for opportunity. If there's like an event going on, on a local reservation or in your community that is a place where, you know, you are invited to come gather and learn, always take advantage of it. Just show up. Don't say anything. Be there and listen. And if you do that enough, then you will start to build community. You'll start to build relationships. And the other thing that I think is really important is this concept of nothing about us without us. And that's something that that kind of like comes from some of the indigenous folks who I've worked with. And it's like, that, you know, we can't like take these ideas and act like, oh, we have now we have this indigenous knowledge and we'll just use it. We have to like we have to not only just pay credit, but we have to involve those communities. What did you learn from making season two? I mean, I, I will just I will keep hammering on it that the power of indigenous knowledge is just like this thing that is totally under leveraged by our current society. And I think that also like the thing that this is really pro- probably the most important thing is this: we look for solutions to 
wildfire, both in the Western United States and globally. We have to understand that like a lot of the things that we're managing are like the needs of different people. We can't just swing super hard one way or the other. If we just go ahead and like protect the entire rainforest and say nobody can like utilize this land for anything except for like these couple of things, there are a lot of people that will be really hosed by that. And we sometimes focus on like the major ag companies or the major beef companies that are like the kind of overlords. But there are a lot of people who are like disenfranchised and, you know, living a life of poverty on the front lines of like burning down the rainforest. And the reason that they are actually like burning the rainforest down is because they don't have any other option. And so when we look at like the solutions, we need to understand the impacts that protection will have on others so that we make sure that nobody's left behind. And same same deal when we look at the forests of the American West. We essentially said no fires. We're just going to like put out all the fires. And that's something we did for like 100, 200 years. And it's like put this in this really bad spot. We actually needed to find a place of balance between letting the forest burn when needed, but in a safe and you know oftentimes prescribed way. And then also like putting out some fires and having the tools in place to make sure that we're keeping communities safe. Oftentimes we look at these things as like, we have to stop fires. We have to stop climate change. But you really need to look at a more like broader perspective and then consider all the parties involved and how we can bring everybody forward into the future. What really surprised you about fires that maybe you didn't know about before? The whole indigenous solutions thing was something that that I, I wish didn't surprise me, but was was a big eye opener. Like, hey, like we don't need to like do tons and tons of research. Like a lot of the answers are actually here. We just need to adapt them properly to our current world. That's that's this really important thing to broadcast instead of reservations being a place of like needing charity. It turns it into this like engaging with those communities as an opportunity to like really fix some of the major problems that we have, which is pretty badass. It's clear that Graham cares deeply about our planet and its future. Recently, Graham decided to leave Bedrock Filmworks to pursue environmental activism full-time with the organization Protect Our Winters. There, Graham mentors other professional athletes as they advocate for climate change policy. The word activism can be intimidating, conjuring up beliefs like having to be zero waste or never eating meat. Graham has a different perspective. He's adopted a concept called imperfect advocacy. How did all this lead you? I mean, I kind of am getting this, like how it led you to activism. But I've heard you talk about this idea of imperfect advocacy. It's one thing for us to want to get into activism and another thing for us to actually be activists. So tell me about how all this kind of led you to where you are today and what imperfect advocacy even means. That is like one of my favorite things to talk about. So like I mentioned, I had this background in glacial hydrology and I spend a ton of my time in the big mountains of the world, but I felt totally shut down by the perceived hypocrisy around being a professional athlete who spent a lot of time on airplanes. And I really saw that as something that that made it so that I couldn't communicate on climate. And that was pivoted for me by an organization called Protect Our Winners. Um, and I I've, I started working with them and I think it was 2016. And it was just like this conversation that really just kicked off. I was in Carbondale, Colorado at uh, the Five Point Film Festival. We were screening a film there. And one of the executives from Protect Our Winners was there. And I got introduced to her. 
And she was like, why aren't you advocating on climate? And I was like, well, because I fly a lot and it seems inappropriate. And she's like, nope, bad answer. Like, you need to be a climate advocate. You are perfect for this. And it was like, okay, well, then tell me how. And um, and subsequently, they got me engaged with this concept of, you know, what we're referring to as imperfect advocacy. And it's really this idea that we all need to be communicating on climate. And under the current energy regime that we have right now, we are all imperfect advocates. Anybody like us advocating on climate right now, like we're using all sorts of power to like run this podcast for me to, you know, have AC running in my home so I'm not getting destroyed by hay fever. This is all stuff that's run with power. And where I am in Central Oregon, a lot of it is coming from fossil fuels. And and that means that you know, to be an advocate at all under our current energy system is to be imperfect. And if we let that shut us down, then we will never get anything done. The second thing is that we kind of have this like narrative problem when it comes to how we talk about climate. And for years and years, we've been sold the idea that like personal change is how we fix climate. We stop eating meat, we stop flying, we stop driving, we stop heating our homes. And that leads us down this pathway towards like, How do we fix climate? We fix climate by like staying at home and like living off of carrots in the backyard and giving up on all of these things that we love, global travel, engaging with global culture, engaging with all these outdoor rec activities that are the things that like totally fill our cup. And all of the onus is taken off of the, you know, the energy companies, all of the onus is taken off of corporations and it's all placed on us. And there's like, there's a different narrative that we can follow that is far more productive and is also much more attainable, which is looking at systemic change, understanding that we have all the technology needed to decarbonize air travel, to decarbonize road travel, to decarbonize how we heat our homes, how we cook our food, how we like transport electricity across the country, all those kinds of things. And if we push for that systemic change, if we advocate for it as imperfect advocates, then we have the ability to, instead of our narrative being like, you have to choose between all these things that you love and progress of society, we can instead say, we need to progress forward in terms of how we get energy. And if we progress towards a green energy economy, then we can do all these things that we love and we can do so in a way that is decarbonized and, you know, basically has a better relationship with our earth. The most important component to all of that, I think, is to live a decarbonized lifestyle and like make that personal change right now requires buying an EV, buying solar panels, updating your appliances in your home, being able to work remotely. And that stuff all is deeply associated with a high socioeconomic status. And that means to like decarbonize your lifestyle, there's a huge equity problem. And if you're somebody who is like operating near the poverty line, like you don't have the ability to buy an EV. You can't like buy an induction stove or put solar panels in. And if we look at systemic solutions, then we're able to change the way that everybody gets power and we're able to decarbonize everybody's lives and therefore deal not only with climate, but also take a look at social equity as well, which is super important because those things are really closely intertwined. That's like a pretty deep answer, Graham, which I appreciate. So what are you doing on the day to day for climate change? And then, you know, what can what can, what do you think is like the best thing that we can all do? 
Well, there's a really easy answer, and that is vote. Most of the listeners are in the United States. Voting is this thing that is pretty dang easy to do. As American citizens, we're pretty lousy with voting. And as outdoor recreationalists, I think we're particularly lousy with voting. Like As we look at our ability to impact locally versus federally in like the federal playing field, me as an individual, I'm very small. But if I look at my ability to impact what we're doing in Bend, Oregon, like the place where I live, it actually gets pretty big because it's a really small pond and it's my community. It's people that I speak to. And so as we look at how policy around these kinds of things builds, lots of times it's, you know, it starts in the local space, it moves to the state and then it goes federal. And that's a, that's a really like well-proven pathway. And we need to look at that same kind of formula for climate, when we look at climate solutions, they're very regional, you know, in terms of what resources are available. And so it's something that like getting involved locally and understanding what's what's available locally and how you can get at it is really important. As a human being living on planet Earth, we have a responsibility to take care of our environment. But that doesn't mean you're personally responsible for climate change. Sometimes fighting this battle on a systemic level is more important than being a, quote, perfect environmentalist. Graham believes that if we vote, if we call our representatives, and if we focus on enriching our own communities, then our net impact will always be positive. Graham Zimmerman, thank you so much for coming on Wild Ideas Worth Living. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with me and with our listeners. Wildfire is such a well-done podcast, it truly feels like watching a movie. If you haven't listened to Wildfire, go binge listen to it now. You can follow Graham in his activism and adventures on his own website, GrahamZimmerman.com, and also on Instagram, at Graham Zimmerman. That's G-R-A-H-A-M-Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative. Our senior producer is Chelsea Davis, and our associate producer is Jenny Barber. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow the show, when you rate it, and when you take time to write a review wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. <laughs>